Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview senior executives by posing the exact questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders, The Anatomy of a Multibagger is sponsored by Tegas. Tegas is an innovative and disruptive company that is changing the way professional investors work. For more information, please visit their site at tegas.co. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Bruce Young, the CEO of Concrete Pumping Holdings. The company has a $485 million market cap and is the largest domestic player in a niche of construction-related services that is called concrete pumping. Bruce became CEO of the company back in 2008, but started his career in this industry way back in the 1980s. Concrete pumping provides a high-margin, mission-critical service to its construction partners and has the ability to deploy capital at attractive multiples as it helps the industry consolidate further. Given that concrete pumping is rather new to public markets, I was very curious to hear from Bruce about how the company generates such high margins and recognizes very high returns on incremental investments, the ongoing roll-up opportunity the company has, as well as avenues for organic growth, and the capital allocation process the company employs when deciding between M&A and adding new equipment. For full disclosure, Cove Street is not a concrete pumping shareholder. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Concrete Pumping CEO, Bruce Young. As always, we will start this podcast at a pivotal moment in the company's history. So let's go back to 2018 when the company first became publicly traded. You had been CEO of Concrete Pumping since 2008. Why was 2018 the right time to go public? And what have you found are the major differences between being public and being private? Thanks for asking that question. Uh, in uh, 2018, we had been private equity owned for about four years, and we'd had a really nice run. Uh, everybody uh, had made a you know decent amount of return, and we decided to go to a, a private equity auction to determine what the next steps for our business would be. Through that auction, we uh, were introduced to the industrial SPAC. Uh, we liked the idea of becoming a public company. There's no one in our industry that had done that, uh, being much larger than any other player. It was something that we thought uh, we were the ones that should do that. And uh, largely that, that process put us into the position where we're currently at. And so from my understanding, you know, th- this has been a business that has been around in various forms for a long time and, and, and it has been, you know, assembled a number of assets over time. So maybe you could just walk us through the, you know, not, a, not the long history, but just a, like a brief history of the company and how all these assets were s- assembled over time. Sure, that's great. And, and I've been with the company since 1985. So I've uh, witnessed many of these things. In fact, a business that I owned was the first acquisition of the business. Uh, 
So the, the founders started the business with the idea that there were, you know, this is an industry that's all family owned and there was no national player. The idea was to, you know, grow very rapidly through some through organic growth, some through acquisition. Um, we've uh, done maybe 60 acquisitions over time. And so combining the acquisitions with the, uh, with the organic growth, uh, with a strategy to really become a premier pumping company that provides services that no one else provides uh, has really played out over time. And in, in, in the introduction, you mentioned that, um, you know, you wanted to go public because there were no public companies in that space. How have you found that? I mean, we've found at times when there is no public company to compare to, investors have a lot of trouble figuring out, are you this, are you that? How, how have you found that process of being public and trying to you know, give people context for how they should view your business? Yeah, that's a really good question. And since there's no direct comps to us, uh, really, we uh, we spend an awful lot of time showing investors the value that our business brings. You know, we're a business that has good margins. We create a lot of cash flow. We have a lot of growth opportunities where we can push that, put that cash to work. And as we play out that strategy over time, we're, we're seeing that we're getting credibility from market and, uh, and the share value has been showing that over the last year or so. And you, you know, you mentioned the the profile of this business, so I think it it would help for us to kind of dig into the business a little bit, and and so people can understand the returns and the margins a little better. So let's let's just start for for anyone who's never heard of concrete pumping as a as an industry as a, as a segment before. Like, just just walk us through exactly what that is and what what kind of services you provide for your customers. Yeah, great. Um, so everyone knows that on almost all co- construction sites, there's an there's a large amount of concrete in the foundations and in the decks and other portions of the of the uh, structure. Um, and everyone knows what a ready mix truck is. So the ready mix truck uh, has a drum on the back and it brings concrete to the site. Now, if they can't take the uh, that drive that ready mix truck to the point of placement, for instance, in deep holes or in high rise buildings or in long distances where you know you know terrain doesn't allow it to get there. They need another mechanism of placing that concrete and concrete pumps are the most efficient, uh, cost-effective way of doing that. Um, and concrete pumps come in many different shapes and sizes. Uh, for instance, we have uh, line pumps or static pumps that have the ability to pump as much as a mile in distance or, you know, the highest buildings in, in, in the U S or the UK. Um, and then we also have boom trucks, which is uh, the largest portion of our business, which are somewhat like a truck mounted crane with a pipeline that runs along the boom. And uh, they come in different lengths as well in different configurations uh, to get in and out of tight areas or long distances where you can place uh, with a boom up to a couple of hundred feet. Now, we also have an EcoPan business and, and every one of these concrete placements needs a suitable uh, um, washout um, that meets the EPA requirements. And so the concrete pumps and the ready mix trucks and the, uh, and, and the laborers tools on site need to be washed out into some kind of a system that t- contains uh, mostly the wastewater. And so our EcoPan business uh, delivers pans of different sizes to the job site where they can clean these um, tools and, and equipment out. We, we seal the, uh, the containers with, the, with a lid that ensures that the water doesn't leak out onto the highways as we're driving it off to have the water separated out and the solids recycled. And you have a slide in your presentation that highlights not what concrete pumping is, but what it is not, which is kind of interesting. So for instance, you mentioned that you don't take possession of concrete or rent out your equipment to customers. What investor misunderstandings or potential misunderstandings are you addressing with that slide? What are you, what are you trying to tell people about your business that, that um, may not be obvious at first? 
You know, I, I think uh, maybe the biggest misunderstanding is um, that we never take possession of the concrete. We don't drive to the bash plant, pick up the concrete, bring it to the site. Uh, we purely have, we are a service business. We have one person on the site that operates the equipment. Uh, the ready mix truck drives to us. Uh, our equipment puts it to the point of placement uh, where the laborers are on the job site at. Um, and, and really the success of our business is being very efficient and very reliable about making sure there's no disruption on the job site as we're taking the concrete from that ready mix truck to the point of placement. And the thing that attracted me to this company, um, I think were the high margins. So from, from your recent financials, EBITDA margins have consistently been around 30%. And while you're still spending 10 to 12% of sales on CapEx, I would say this company has pretty healthy cash flow margins. So what about the nature of the business or the company's position in the industry allows for those healthy uh, free cash flow margins? Yeah, so there's several things. Uh, being the largest in the industry by several times, we have purchasing power that uh, smaller players wouldn't have. So everything that we buy for the equipment, including the equipment, we get at discounts from what the competition would have. Um, um, the utilization of the assets is a big part of what we do. Um, we have uh, end market geographic diversity. We have uh, sophisticated asset management programs where we make sure that those assets get put in areas where, uh, where we can get the greatest return. And, and as, as you look at our industry, you know, there is some cyclicality uh, um, in, in different end markets and different geographies at different times and have the ability to move those assets uh, to where, the, um, where we get the greatest return really is what drives those margins. And you've been in this industry for, I mean, close to 40 years now. And I'm interested in terms of like, have you seen, it seems like any, any industry that, that generates like high margins and get good, gets good returns. I mean, I think in general attracts competition and new entrants. How, has, I mean, but it seems, it seems to me that, that to some extent the industry is consolidated over, over those times. What's, what's been the, the trend in terms of new competitors coming in versus uh, the opposite, just like you guys continuing to roll up and, and eliminate competitors. And so there's, there's startups uh, often, uh, the residential market, uh, some of the equipment that's used in that isn't as technical as inexpensive as uh, some of the other markets like infrastructure and, uh, and commercial. And so there's new entrances into at smaller levels constantly, you know, companies coming in and out. Uh, our industry, both in the U.S. and in the U.K., is largely family-owned businesses other than ourselves. And so that's what we're competing against. And, and there's some really good businesses. Some of these families run really nice businesses, but they're more in, in, uh, in, in one city or at least in a, in a smaller region than what we have. And, and the business usually only grows uh, as big as what that individual can manage themselves. And so the se secret of what we've done is, you know, this is our business is very decentralized as we've been able to assemble a team of people with the structure and the controls in place um, to provide very technical service with the very expensive equipment, uh, very efficient. And in your presentations, you highlight the high returns on investment tied to concrete pumping and EcoPan equipment. I'm just getting a sense of, you mentioned utilization being the ma major factor, but is, is that why the returns are so high? It's that you guys are just able to purchase a machine and just use, use it as much as possible in as many different areas. And you be, and, and the returns are from frequency and utilization versus some other, you know, uh, aspect of the, of the, of the equipment itself. Yeah. And that's the biggest part of it, making sure that our asset management tools are making sure that we get the right returns uh, on, on those assets. Now, one of the advantages we have of being a larger player is 
there are many different assets that are needed for very specific jobs where a small player may have one job in, in their city and, and not another, another job wouldn't come around for several years before they would need that again. Or a big player like ours, we could use it in Seattle and the next job might be in LA and, and other things where we get uh, better returns on some of those very expensive machines. And then in our EcoPan business, it's all about creating route density is how many pans can we pick up and deliver in a tight area every time we send that truck out. Compounders is brought to you in partnership with Tegas. We created Compounders to uncover the lessons and frameworks of the best capital compounders in the world. And if you are a professional investor, VC, or operator, and you appreciate the deep research into the businesses explored on this podcast, check out tegas.co slash compounders. With Tegas, you can learn about any company directly from former execs, current customers, and industry experts all of which are in position to offer unique insights into company's growth, its customer value, and its competition. What makes Tegas different is that you don't have to lead your own expert calls. The platform offers instant access to the world's largest collection of investor-led call transcripts on companies such as Compounders Guests, Viasat, Element Solutions, and Avid Technology. All you have to do is log in and you'll get instant access to nearly 25,000 expert call transcripts. And the best part, the Tegas collection grows larger with each investor and company that joins. Still want to do your own expert calls? Tegas is the right solution. Experts that are just as good or better than what you'd find on other networks, but starting at just $300 per call, not the $1,000 or more others charge. If you're ready to go deeper on the next compounding business, head to tegas.co slash compounders for a free trial. I can personally say that having access to the Tegas platform and Rolodex of experts has fundamentally changed the quality of due diligence Coast Street does on both new and existing ideas. And if I were one of your customers on a job site and you know I, I was thinking about procuring concrete placement uh, services, what, what would I be most concerned about? Would I be really focused on the price? Or something else like, you know, safety or timing or something like that be more important potentially than price? Yeah, well, you know, price is important to all of our customers. They have responsibility to do what's right for their businesses. And so we're certainly aware of that. But uh, we're also mission critical. If the concrete pump isn't working on the job site, uh, you know, there's a big disruption. Concrete gets hard in the truck and goes back or the laborers are idle on the job site. So, the, you know, we've done some analysis on this. And, and what we think uh, is most important to them is, first of all, the, the technical ability of our, our, our people and the ability to, to give them the service that they need, the most efficient way to place the concrete. And then if there is an issue, do we have the ability to, to uh, react to that very quickly so that there's no disruption to their job site? Um, you know, availability, uh, our customers absolutely want us when they want us. Uh, you know, if they want to pour at two o'clock in the morning, uh, we can't call them and say, let's go at four. It, it's two. And so they need to have the right piece of equipment at the right time. Um, and then it's got to be reliable. You know, they, again, if the machine breaks down and causes disruption on, on their job site, uh, you know, you know, it's, it causes serious consequences for them. And then, as I mentioned earlier, we have anything that's made, we have it. And so um, if they need that specialty piece of machinery for, you know, just a few pours on that placement, they can rely on us to give them uh, that machinery. And my understanding is that pumping costs represent a very small percentage of a total job cost. So given that, how do you think about pricing power and taking pricing, especially given what we're seeing in terms of 
labor rates rising and raw material prices rising. And my guess is your equipment costs are not getting any cheaper in a year. So in, in a given year. So how are you thinking about your pricing power and what, what has that looked like historically? Yeah, so we've always done a pretty good job of getting reasonable rates uh, um, to give us good margins for our customers. Now inflation has hit us. We're dealing with labor inflation. We're dealing with fuel prices, uh, you know, the cost of repair and maintenance on our trucks and, and uh, insurance. Those are maybe the bigger areas that we're dealing with currently. And we're factoring those things in as we work out new pricing on new projects and, and for, you know, future projects with, uh, with our customers. And as I think about your business, it would seem to me like it would be beneficial to, you know, for the, if I were a customer that, um, you know, I could, I could procure more services from you guys. Like if I could do, if you could be more of a one-stop shop for some of my needs, that would be helpful. So, you know, as you think about maybe this business years on out and, and building it over time, are there any other products or, or services that are immediately adjacent that you could acquire or build internally that would kind of allow you to add to your bag and, and simply sell more per project to your customers? Yeah, that's a good point. And, and we look at those things. Uh, you know, that's how our EcoPan business came along is we saw a need from a customer. We saw something that uh, we were very good at and fit well with us. And we added that on. We are looking at, at a few other uh, opportunities that might, uh, you know, be synergistic with us. Uh, but I will say mostly our focus is on is gaining share in each market that we're in, you know, greenfielding, you know, moving our footprint out a little wider, uh, those sorts of things. But we're always open to new ideas. And when you talk about gaining share, is that, I mean, this is kind of an episodic business, right? There'll be a big project that, that, that you're on and maybe, you know, and then it, it goes off. And so what is, how do you measure share gain over time within a given region or given market? Like, how do you, how do you measure whether you're being successful in that goal? Yeah, so we have the ability to track how much concrete is produced and delivered in each location that we're in. We know about what percentage of that in each market uh, goes through a concrete pump. And then we, uh, you know, obviously it's just math to determine whether our share is, you know, going in the right direction. Um, something we're very focused on. And another interesting thing, you know, that's coming out as you're talking and, and, and as, as I, you know, read through your presentations and, and, and filings, it came out as, as well that, it feels like you have a lot of different choices of where to deploy capital. You can buy new equipment that looks like it gets really attractive returns. It looks like you can also buy uh, some of the mom and pop uh, companies at, at pretty reasonable multiples. So as you're, you know, you're sitting in the boardroom and you're talking with the management team, how are you triaging that capital deployment and deciding where to purchase equipment versus do an M&A or do any other kind of organic initiatives? That's an area that we spend an awful lot of time on. Uh, we create a significant amount of cash and, and how do we put that cash to work to grow our business? And um, we we have looked at every market in the U.S. and mostly adjacent markets to where we're currently at. We look at, the, is there an opportunity to greenfield into those markets? Uh, is, is it better to go in through M&A with a, with a good M&A opportunity with uh, someone that meets our criteria? Um, is it, do we need to use that cash to improve our fleets? So we provide better service to our customers, but those are the areas that we're largely focused on today. And this company came out of the gate with a little bit of leverage. Can you talk about the right amount of leverage for this business and how you've, um, you know, managed the balance sheet during the recent COVID impacted period? 
Yeah. So when we came out as a public company, uh, the timing wasn't fantastic for us. And it kind of set our plan back a couple of years from where we really, really thought we would be. But uh, um, but we did have a target. We, we do still have the target of getting leverage down to about two and a half times. Now, we expect to get there more through growth than through paying down debt. Um, you know, we're financed by a high yield bond. Um, in, in the COVID period, you know, as horrible as COVID has been for so many people, it really gave us an opportunity to work on the balance sheet. Um, our workload wasn't that affected. Our, our margins were really good. Uh, we paid down $42 million worth of debt uh, during 2020 uh, when many businesses were suffering so much and really put us in a position to refinance the business with more favorable terms and, and really give us uh, the balance sheet to lay out our, our to enact on our strategy going forward. And as you look internally, right, you, you're, you're talking about, you know, you don't even really need to, um, you know, focus on debt pay down if you can be successful in your operations. Um, where, you know, you've been in this industry for a long time, you've been tied to this business for a really long time. Um, where are there, where is there room for continuous improvement in the business? And, you know, how, how have you thought about creating a culture that strives for that and, and, and is able to achieve that kind of continuous improvement? Yeah, for us, it's all about developing our teammates. Uh, we we have very, very technical uh, operational guys. Uh, I mean, I have an operational background and developing these operational guys and the skills they have to create value in their business uh, responsibilities in the branches and the regions they run. And as we develop those people, um, our business improves and our margins improve and our growth improves. And I can imagine that the labor market for your service employees is pretty difficult right now. How are you managing through that? And how do you make concrete pumping a place that people want to stay at for years? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say labor in the construction industry in general has been the biggest challenge through COVID where folks uh, just haven't come back uh, from furloughs in the UK or, or you know, programs in the US that were helping them uh, keep off the, out of the job sites. And I think many of them, you know, found it a little more comfortable than, pro, you, know, you know, jobs where you have to work long hours and out in the elements and that sort of thing. And so we've really had to uh, address the way we pay our people, um, you know, the benefits that we provide, the working conditions, the type of equipment they run. And so we've been highly focused on that to really bring the premium employees into our business. And to this point, we've been able to do that and manage uh, the workload that our customers have. And you mentioned that this company is highly decentralized. I'm interested in, in how you think about uh, the level of, of autonomy that you'll give someone in a local market or a lo local region. You know, how, how, much, how, mu how much do they have the ability to make capital allocation decisions or investment decisions versus having to come to the corporate endeavor to, to you know, figure out what, you know, whether they should do something or not? Yeah, so they don't make capital allocation decisions now. They put budgets together annually to determine where they think they'll go, what kind of assets that they, they might need. They may do better than that. They may not do quite as well. And then work, we'll work the assets around to make sure that they have what their needs are uh, as they grow the business. Uh, the guys that run our divisions really are tied in with their customers and their employees, and that's the, our key. Um, and then, of course, we teach them how to create value with that and what the pricing might be. We have tools in place that help our managers understand how to bid a certain project and, and historical information on certain customers and, and what our typically, typical revenues have been with them and what they need to be going for. Forward. So we have great tools to help them, but uh, they they have an awful lot of autonomy to to run their businesses day to day in their in their in their various locations. And you've been with this company um, since you know the 1980s. 
I'm interested in how the culture has evolved over that time. I mean, through different ownership periods and obviously different market cycles. How has the culture evolved um, since, you know, since you first got to the company in the 80s? You know, we have always been very good operationally. This business has always attracted the very best in the industry. We've always had the best of equipment and our customers have always looked at us as a premium service. That part um, really has never changed from the beginning. What's changed is uh, we were very entrepreneurial in the beginning and now we're very professionally run with very sophisticated accounting systems and controls in place. And so how do you keep that entrepreneurial spirit and incentivize people to remain, you know, in that, in that entrepreneurial sphere, even as the business becomes kind of quote unquote more corporate. Yeah. So again, our, you know, we're, we're like many little businesses and, and our managers are compensated based on their performance. And, and we encourage that. I'm a bit of an entrepreneur myself and, uh, and, and I like driving growth and working with them to help them drive growth and then get a reward for themselves. This could be pretty substantial as they improve their businesses. It's really been what we've been able to do to drive that. And I'm interested in, we haven't talked about compensation yet, but, you know, the labor markets are tough and, um, you know, it just seems like a really difficult time when it comes to retaining employees. How have you thought about, especially now that you're a public company, how have you thought about getting stock, um, you know, whether through options or restricted stock down further into the organization so people feel like they're, you know, benefiting from the success of the entire organization? You know, that's one of the things being a public company has helped us with from, from the very beginning. We were able to put a stock program in place uh, um, that goes down fairly deep into our organization. All of our branch managers and, and several within the branches are, have equity programs. Uh, and it's becoming a very significant thing. And, and it's certainly driving uh, growth in our business and motivating our people to do a better job. So we... Um... You mentioned that this business has some ups and downs and some inherent cyclicality just based on, you know, the cycles that that commercial and residential construction go through. Um, so this company wasn't public uh, in 2008 and 2009. So we can't really, as, as investors, see what that period was like. But I would love to hear, you know, given your tenure in the business, how you would describe the cyclicality in the business and how you manage through the inevitable cycles that real estate, you know, construction goes through. Yeah, so everyone knows that we do go through through cycles, but they don't happen in the same geographies and the same end, end markets at the same time. And that's where our big you know, ge geographic footprint and market diversity. You know, we know that residential you know cycles higher and lower than than commercial and infrastructure. And so we try not to have too much of our uh, too high a percentage of our total revenue into residential to to uh, keep us from that challenge. But even looking at, at COVID, when COVID hit, we had markets that got hit pretty hard, and we were able to move those assets to other markets that actually did better than what we expected. And so having, having that diversity and, and not being over levered uh, is really what we're focused on to, to keep us strong through any cycle. And during the recent period, the COVID influence period, was it more about moving assets around or were there other elements of the business and your cost structure that you were flexing to make sure that you guys, you know, we're going to see the other side of this, um, you know, kind of unscathed? You know, initially when COVID hit, and really we didn't know how it was going to affect our business, we cut off, cut off any capex spend. We just thought, you know what? Until we know um, where this is going, let's let's uh, shut off capital expense. Uh, 
And it turned out we didn't need to because we still created a lot of cash. We turned that back on. We still uh, created a lot of cash and and met our you know what our goals would be for replacing re- replacing our assets. Now some of the things that we um, that we worked hard on as the residential market became hot, it was a much smaller percentage of our business, especially in the mountain states uh, in Texas. We aggressively went after the residential market and we were able to uh, you know keep our utilization up on our equipment by shifting to end markets that we hadn't done as much work in previously. And as you think about the long-term potential for growth, let's let's focus on the domestic side because we'll, we'll move into the international side as well. But as you think about the long-term um, opportunities for growth for you, um, what you know, what does that look like? I mean, because my guess is, you know, you're going to be somewhat tied to construction cycles. I mean, but how do you get this business to outgrow, I don't know, whatever GDP or whatever, you know, kind of some kind of market growth? Where are the opportunities for you to do so? Yeah, again, it's uh, M&A, greenfielding, uh, creating greater share in the markets we're currently in. Uh, those things are what we're highly focused on. And we think uh, there's, there's an awful lot of opportunity in all those areas. Yeah, and we're going to touch on on the geographic opportunities you have, and um, in addition to uh, the M and A opportunities. But I would love to talk a little bit about the the business you have in the UK before we move there. Um, are there any major differences between the markets in terms of like how the businesses run or how the industry operates? Um, and you know how how are you positioned in the UK relative to your position in the in the US? Yeah, so the, the differences are very subtle. Um, they don't place concrete as fast in the UK as they do in the US. Um, they uh, um, it's a more controlled environment. Um, but as far as uh, as far as our position in the UK, where we have about thirty five percent market share. Um, in, in the entire country. Um, we have that in many of the regions that we're in here. We operate the UK just very much the same way we would, we would run a region of US pumping. And if you think longer term, what does the international business look like in, in, in your mind? And then what what is a strategy for maybe diversifying a little bit outside of the US and, or, or additionally outside of the US? And when the opportunity came to go to the UK, that was something that we weren't interested in at that point in time. Uh, we went; They were holding an auction to sell three businesses at the same time. We met with them and we found that they were some of the best concrete pumpers that we had ever been around. And we just fell in love with the business and we thought it was a great addition to ours. Um, it certainly wasn't our sh- part of our strategy back in 2016 when we did that. Now, we'll continue to do that. If there's other opportunities in other countries that come up, we'll go and look at them. And if it's a good fit with good people, um, you know, certainly we might act on that, but but largely our focus is on growing the business both in the U.S. and the U.K. We think, especially in the U.S., there's an awful lot of opportunity uh, in areas that we're currently not in, um, and I think that's where largely our focus will be. And if you did decide to go into a, another country, it sounds like it'd be more about the company that you could partner with as opposed to there's something inherently attractive about this country um, specifically, or, or am I wrong? Is there, is there like, are there certain markets that would make more sense given your, given your, your skill set and the company's history? You know, for us, it always starts with good teammates, especially when you're doing business with someone that's 4,000 miles away, you have to have a certain level of comfort with those folks. Uh, 
to invest in that in that market. And so that's really what we what we focus on. And and our industry is really small. We know most of the players in it, and we know who would be good to teammates. We know who don't want those who don't want to be on our team. Uh, but even internationally, we've 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 looked at several businesses, and there's some very interesting things that are out there. But we're going to put our capital to work where we get the best return. So your markets in the U.S. especially remain pretty fragmented, you know, even though you're the largest player. Maybe just talk about the, the structure of the market and then talk a, a little bit about the roll-up opportunity that you have, um, you know, basically, as you, as you said, as the mom and pops, uh, you know, eventually decide to sell or if they get out of the business. Like how, what does that look like over time? Yeah, so there are some markets where there really isn't uh, a mom and pop there that we would be interested in. And those markets we look at as, as a greenfield opportunities. And there are others that are very well run. It really comes down to when the founders decide that it's time for them to get out, do they have children that want to take on the business or have the ability to take on the business? And if they do, often they hand it down to the children. If not, uh, we'll, we'll get a call and, and typically that starts a negotiation. And this company issued stock to make the acquisition of a company called Capital Pumping back in 2019. Um, I'm interested just in first, like why you stock? Was it a balance sheet decision? Was it a, you know, someone wanted to sell and wanted, you know, wanted stock as opposed to paying cash um, and, and paying taxes on that? And also like, you know, it looks like you paid five and a half times EBITDA or less for that business. That's a pretty, seems like a pretty attractive multiple. So, you know, two questions there, why you stock and, and then, you know, how are you able to get these businesses at such low multiples? Yeah. So when we looked at the capital business, it was a, it was a second largest biggest in, business in the U.S. to ours, very well-run business. It's a business that we were really excited about tucking into ours. Um, at that point in time, we did have a balance sheet challenge. And in order to bring that in, um, we, we felt like that was the right way to go about it at that point in time. Um, going forward, we're, our balance sheet's in a much better position. Um, many of the acquisitions would be smaller than that. Um, but we are able to, you know, there's not a lot of competition on, on acquisitions. There, you know, there's some, you know, there, there is some, but it's uh, more of a negotiation. Um, and, and going forward, as we look at acquisitions, we've done a couple in, over the last several months, uh, and we've been able to, you know, fund those you know, out of our cash flow. And that's what, largely what we expect to do into the future. And do these deals mostly come from relationships as because you've known these families forever and you, you've competed against them and, you know, you maybe even had discussions in the past about combining versus, you know, a, a bank is running an auction and you have to participate in an auction? Yeah, almost all of them come through relationships. Uh, we've been in the industry a long time. We, we know most of the players. We've been good competitors to them. We hope that uh, our business is viewed upon raising the standard for everybody in the industry. And, and for many of them, we're just a natural call. And if I look at the map of where you guys are focused, there are parts of the U.S., such as the Northeast and the Great Lakes region, where you, know, must, you don't have either no or almost no operations. So maybe talk about that, um, you know, desire, the desire to move into those areas. And then, you know, if you're going to do a greenfield expansion versus an uh, M&A opportunity, what does greenfield look like? like are, you, are you setting up an office? Just maybe describe what, what greenfield has looked like. 
Yeah. So typically when we do a greenfield, it's in an adjacent market to a market that we're already in. And so we can run it more as a satellite of, of another market. So we don't have a lot of overhead to get started there. Really just equipment yards with, uh, you know, operators, mechanics, uh, you know, a manager, salesperson, that sort of thing. Um, so it's really low overhead to, to move into that. Now, as far as uh, moving into some of these markets that you've suggested, uh, you know, eventually we'd like to be in all the major markets in, in the U.S. Uh, we're already in every major market in the U.K., um, you know, we like to be in adjacent markets just for the obvious. It, it's easy to support with equipment and people as you're growing out uh, th- through markets that are, you know, 100 miles away versus 1,000 miles away. Um, but eventually we, we anticipate being in all those markets. And, and again, we evaluate each one to, to determine whether there's an interesting acquisition opportunity for us or whether Greenfield's the right way to go. And you mentioned that uh, the capital pumping deal was a big one and that future deals would likely be smaller. Um, at least, you know, let's start in the U.S. Are there other, you know, capital pumping size companies out there or is it there was a big drop off between you guys capital pumping and the, and the next group of, of players? Yeah, there, there's one more in the U.S. that's very similar in size to capital um, and something that, uh, you know, they're a very good competitor of ours. Uh, we know them well. Um, and from that, they, they fall off uh, fairly quickly. And how does that look in the U.K.? I mean, how is that? What are the what are the what does the market structure look like and how, you know, how big how big a deal could there possibly or, or a partner could you possibly find in the U.K. versus in the U.S.? Yeah, recently in the UK, we did a bit, we acquired a business that had about a dozen machines, and that's a big business in the UK. So there's there's not any sizable op- acquisition opportunities, or more just asset purchases and and just gaining share in a given market. Got it. Um, so one thing that's always interesting to me is um, how an industry evolves over time. So you've been in the concrete pumping business for, for almost 40 years. And, um, you know, it, I'm interested to hear how have your customers' needs and desires and wants evolved over time? And how do you, you know, create an organization that, you know, kind of skates to where the puck is going to be as opposed to where, where it is right now? Yeah. So um, when I started in the business, uh, concrete pumps weren't very reliable and, and it was um, you know almost a roll of the dice to determine whether you were going to be successful that day. And so um, very, very small percentage of concrete that was produced actually went through a concrete pump. Um, that's changed over time. The equipment's become more reliable. It's become more versatile. Um, uh, it can do things that we didn't dream of 40 years ago, and that continues to, Im- to evolve. Uh, there's a lot of competition with the manufacturers, and they're always racing to the newest, best thing. And we, uh, we work very closely with them to uh, make sure that, uh, that we're part of the R&D and we have input on, on what those assets are. Um, being our size, uh, you know, we have uh, some influence, influence there. And so we just want to make sure that uh, as our customers' projects become more sophisticated and their needs become uh, greater that we have the ability to address those things as they, as they occur. And it would seem to me that the eco pan business fits well in there, you know, as the world focuses more on, on you know, kind of the environmental impact of, of any business, you know, a business that, that like eco pan seems like it would fit well um, with kind of moving to where your customers are focused. Um, so maybe you could describe that business in a little more detail um, and then talk about the growth strategy and, and, and how you think about getting better penetration of that business over time. 
Yeah, so maybe we start with, uh, we started the business in Seattle back in the late 90s when it became very important to keep the waterways clean. Um, for instance, uh, if you're on a city street and, and slurry goes into the, uh, into the storm sewer, it ends up running down into a river and it ultimately ends up in the Puget Sound. And, and you know, in, in Seattle, they're, obviously, they're very proud of the salmon up there and very protective of them. And so that's really where it started. And, and as contractors were having a challenge keeping their job sites clean, they would put a, uh, an employee at the back of our hopper when we, they were pouring concrete into our hopper. And if there was any spillage, uh, that employee's job was to, to get it cleaned up so it didn't go into those storm sewers. So, um, and at the end of that project, what they were, they would, wouldn't let us clean the, the concrete pump out on site, which meant we had to drive it somewhere to clean it out, keeping us from going and doing another job, affecting our utilization. So we came up with the idea of putting a pan under the back of our, our truck um, so that as we're pumping, if there's any spillages contained in that pan, the labor is off doing, you know, being more productive on the job site. And at the end of the day, we could clean our pump out into that pan and go do another job. And we basically charged it what it was costing them to, uh, to have that labor out on the street. And that's the way the business, business started. Um, we found out uh, we made money the very first month doing that. And we thought, okay, this is a great idea. And so then we, we, we expanded on that. We brought it into other markets. We developed different sizes of containers. Uh, we found more efficient way to get the materials recycled. Um, but really, it's about getting the story out to to the customers. And we, we, you know, initially, it was more about being environmentally conscious, which is important to m- many of our customers. But we also found out we can do it cost effectively, so we can we can keep their job sites cleaner and and in compliant, and 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 it isn't, doesn't cost them any more than what they're currently doing on their site. And is there any inherent barrier to better penetration, or is it just about telling the story? Um, in a, in a way that's more compelling or and just getting the word out there more that this exists? Yeah, it's really getting the story. Um, you know, we, we, were, we had uh, near 20% um, revenue growth and a little better EBITDA growth prior to COVID. The challenge we had with COVID is many people weren't on job sites any longer, and it was very difficult to sell the service uh, um, when we weren't face-to-face with folks. That's opened up now, and we're getting back to, you know, significant growth with that business. But really, it's just getting out in front of people, telling the story. And something that's always interesting to me um, in any business is vertical integration and the opportunities there. So when I hear that you're handling, you know, um, I assume that you take once you collect uh, the the wastewater, basically, that comes from this, it has to be disposed of somewhere. I mean, is there is, is it in the purview of this business to kind of vertically integrate and handle, you know, wastewater disposal yourself or get into that business? Or are you know are you happy to find partners who are ha- who will dispose of the waste for you? You know we do both in the, in our, our markets that are more mature where we have higher volumes we do take the material back to our yard we separate the solids out we handle the water um, we have markets where we stockpile all the material and, and we sell it off uh, um, you know have it crushed and sell it off and so there's things that we're doing um, that are evolving in that business we're still in the early stages of that but that really is the next step for us there. And we've already talked about this a little bit, but, you know, this is a newish public company and it's unique and it's not a pure play specialty rental company. And it's also not a pure play waste management company. So, you know, how how have you been guiding, not guiding is not the right word, but giving people context of like, this is kind of a business, this is the kind of business you should think of us as like, there's no perfect comp, but you should kind of place us in this box. What, what have you been telling people on that front? 
you know, we find ourselves telling them more of this is the business that we're not. Um, and so they don't compare us to rental businesses and those sorts of things. Uh, really, we have them focused on our EBITDA margins, our free cash flow, our growth opportunities, uh, those things that show how we create value, not just today, but there's long-term opportunity for growth. And an interesting thing that always comes up in, an, in a company that's been highly acquisitive is systems and processes and ERP and integration. So maybe talk a little bit about your strategy there. I mean, is this company where you you buy something and then within 30 days they're on your systems or, you know, do they operate independently for a little bit longer as you, you know, kind of like slowly move the business over? What's What's been the strategy there? Yeah, the nice thing for us is in, in the US and, and now our business in the UK, um, all use the same system. So most of the businesses, in fact, you know, the two businesses we acquired recently in the US, they both use the same system we use. They already know how to use it. Uh, we, we basically acquired their data and, and tie them into our systems. And then, uh, you know, for accounting, we tie them into our general ledger. But uh, it's actually been very fluid for us. It's not been a real challenge. And in terms of cultural integration, um, you know, let's say you buy a business, you know, maybe it's small, maybe it's 12 machines or something like that. But what what is the onboarding process? How do you get how do you get people inoculated in the culture of safety that which mentions my guess is a focus of yours? How how does that all that work? Yeah, so we don't typically try to integrate them in with a local branch. If we have another branch in that area, we'll let them run separate so our safety team can get in, our accounting team can get in, our operations folks can get in and, and teach them our business before we integrate in with uh, branches that may be there. Now, if it's an area that we're not currently in, uh, you know, very similar. We, we take that same team. You know, we always go in with an integration plan. Um, we, we have a timing that is laid out for every aspect of that. And our team's very well versed on, on what those steps are. And you highlighted that this company has been always very operationally focused and you felt like you've always been a best in class operator. We, so when you acquire something, um, where are there opportunities often to improve their operations? Like what, what aspects of their business that, you know, that, that just, just improve either over a short period of time, or over a longer period of time, you know, being affiliated with, with both the company and its culture? Yeah, so immediately um, our purchasing power improves our margins. Um, we, in nearly in every case to this point, uh, we purchase better than the, the, than the business we acquire. And then fleet management, getting better utilization out of their assets. Uh, we buy very few businesses that get anywhere near the utilization we get out of their assets just because they're smaller in nature and, and they have to have those assets in order to service their customers. So when I see that you pay, you know, sub, sub five and a half times EBITDA for some of these businesses, especially even a big one like Capital, I mean, should we assume that over, you know, that multiple gets a lot lower, um, you know, once you're including synergies and the ability to, um, you know, improve their operations over time? Yeah, every every uh, opportunity we have for M&A, we look at it, and we almost always have about a full turn of, uh, of EBITDA of synergy in the business. And so, I mean, you, as you said, you, you've been on the ride of this company for a long time. I've, I'm interested to, if there were points at which, you know, the acquisition activity just got, you know, maybe a little too much, a little too fast, a little, you know, uh, like the ability to integrate them all and, and and operate them all well 
um, you know, maybe wasn't there. Has, has that ever happened or has it been pretty smooth over, over the, you know, the, the, the 60 plus acquisitions I think you said you've made? Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, from 2001 to 2006, we acquired uh, too many businesses. We didn't do a great job of integrating them. We didn't do a great job of creating value with each one. And we're much more disciplined about the way we go about that. Uh, um, we, we don't take on the next deal until this one's fully integrated or at least at a point where we're comfortable. So our integration team is always available to make sure that we're meeting the needs of, of creating value with that opportunity. And I know that was a, you know, we're going on 15 years plus, you know, since, since that time, but I'm, is that, is that one of the, going back to the history of this business, is that one of the things that brought you into the CEO seat? The fact that there had been this acquisition strategy that maybe was a little bit too fast and too aggressive? Well, I think that, and, uh, and I think there was uh, some, um, I think we got ourselves over leveraged. I think there were things that we needed to do to create better discipline and better value into the business. And, uh, um, and I think that are, that is some of the thing that things that myself and, and really a really good team of people have been able to accomplish. And, you know, I actually forgot to, to ask this about the EcoPan business. So let's, let's pivot back for a second there. Is that business in the UK at all, or is that just domestic? And then if, if, if not, you know, is that, a, is that a potential growth area for the company as well, um, if you can bring EcoPan outside the US? Sure. We do have EcoPan in the UK now. We don't report it separately. It's just part of their, the UK operations, but it is something that we think has a great future in the UK. Got it. And yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, let's see, um, are there, are there any secular tailwinds between concrete, you know, behind concrete pumping as, as a, you know, as a, as a niche, as a business, as an industry, or is it really, you know, I think I've asked this, but I mean, I'm trying to get a sense of like, you know, you, you believe that there are ways for you to take market share. You believe that there are ways to, to, to grow through m but, you know, is, are there are there applications of it that you know are growing in a certain way? Like as 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 construction sites become more complex, for example, like a, maybe ten years ago it wouldn't have needed a concrete pumping solution, and now it does. Is there any kind of like anything pushing and you know kind of at, at your back to help you grow the business over time? Yeah. So if you look back in the year two thousand, about twenty percent of concrete that went. Uh, that was produced went through a concrete pump and and today it's about 35 percent so that continues to grow and that has to do with you know partially they used to crane a lot of concrete they used to wheelbarrow a lot of concrete those sorts of things they don't do much of that anymore and so largely if you can't drive a ready mix truck to it it goes through a concrete pump but sites become more congested that regulations are, are such in some areas where they don't allow to drive ready mix trucks off the street so you have to use a concrete pump from the streets so they're not tracking mud onto the streets and things like that so there's there are some some things that are driving that, that penetration. We expect that to steadily grow, grow over time. And one more question about the uh, international versus the domestic side. Are there any, um, I mean, are, do you get purchasing synergies or any other synergies from having those businesses together or are they really separate and operate you know, almost distinctly um, and, and don't necessarily in theory have to be part of the same organization? Yeah, so the big part of that is uh, purchasing equipment and uh, and replacement parts, and so those are the things that we leverage together. So now I want to move into you know we've talked a lot about the business, we've talked about competition, we've talked about the M and A opportunity. 
you know, now I think, you know, be really interesting for people to learn from your personal experiences and, and, and tenure in the, in, 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 you know, you know, being a public company CEO now, and, but also being, you know, in the industry for so long. So what, what skill sets have you developed over time that you think have been most helpful in terms of running a business? You know, I think I've been able to identify the right talent for the right position, getting the people on the, on the right seat on the, on the bus. Uh, um, I, I seem to have done a very good job of uh, team building and building team chemistry and getting people to buy into the strategy that, uh, that the companies have in place to get them. You know, our people work really hard. And, 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 uh, and in general, there's not a lot of stress on me because our people work really hard and, and they're great teammates. And have you always been a delegator and a builder or have you evolved? I mean, cause I just, you know, any entrepreneur maybe starts and saying like, I want to do everything. I want to look at every check that goes out. I want to, I want to sign every document that we have to sign. Like how have, how has your management style changed um, over the years? You know, that, that may be the most significant thing is I really did have to learn to delegate, you know, 20 years ago, I wanted to be everything to everybody. And I realized that that really stunted the growth of the business and being able to teach people how to do the things that, that they needed to do and become better themselves has freed me up to do other things. Um, I think, you know, as I said, I've always been very operational, but uh, it's forced me, forced me to become more strategic and operational and rely on others to be, you know, technically uh, strong operationally. And it's, I'm always curious about mistakes that, that people make and, and how they learn from them, because inevitably, you know, not every decision we make is perfect. We know that quite well as an investment manager. Um, so are there, you know, any mistakes you've made, you know, either errors of omission, things that, you know, that you should have done that you wish you'd had done, or just, you know, decisions that didn't go right that really stand out, um, at, you know, uh, over your tenure uh, as CEO? You know, there's nothing that really stands out uh, other than, um, you know, we're constantly, you know, we're, we're a company that's moving very fast and we're making decisions constantly. And some of the decisions head in a very positive direction and some of them don't. And, and we, we, you know, we recognize it quickly. We, we, we react quickly. We, we learn from them. Um, but in general, as a team, we've supported each other quite well and, and really haven't done anything that's been, you know, very, you know, to what I would consider very challenging. And are there any lasting, I don't know, for, for lack of a word, better word, scars that the business has, you know, from having, you know, had that very frenzied acquisition um, pace uh, in, the, in the early 2000s um, and, and or any, any learnings that have kind of been embedded in the, the, the culture and the business um, as a result of, of what happened in that period? You know, I, I don't know that there's any scars that we haven't been able to get beyond, but certainly we learn not to run out in front of ourselves too far. You know, make sure we're controlled and deliberate in everything that we do. And, and we try to live to that. And as you step back and you think about the Bruce Young legacy, you know, what, what do you think, you know, once when you decide to step away from being CEO and, and, and the company, like what, what would you want that legacy to be? What, you know, either cultural or, you know, um, operational or even just, um, you know, management elements would you like, you know, would you hope would, would remain in place of the company over, you know, even when you were gone? You know, I think the thing that, that I look back over my career that maybe I'm, you know, 
I'm most pleased about is the ability to take people like myself that started out as equipment operators and teach them how to be business people and evolve in the business. And, and I hope my legacy is giving opportunities for people to grow within the business to, you know, improve their own personal circumstances and improve the business at the same time. And I mean, I would assume that this is a very hands-on business, people in the field, you know, not a lot of remote work. Like, how have you, how do you think about that as like, you know, like it, it appears to me that just about every business has been impacted by obviously by COVID, but also by, you know, distributed workforces now and people working from home. You know, how, you know, you, it's not, my guess is you're more of an old school guy who's, who's you know, who started off in the, in the business himself. Like how, how how have you thought about you know the new world we live in and 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 the ability for people to you know in the corporate office to work from home from example you know we are flexible with our with our corporate office or administrative people uh, you know i personally do like having them in the office uh, I, I think we need to build team chemistry as people are together but i recognize it doesn't have to be full time and so we've been able to work with that and and we realize in a new, new world uh, in order to get some very talented people you have to be a little flexible with that and so i think uh, our entire team has done a pretty good job of that and and any other things you know about either the industry or running a business or you know being a CEO, anything that you you that you know if, if I had asked you ten years ago, you'd have said this is the way the world is, this is the way it works. And now ten years hence, you know you, you have a you have you know you've had to rethink uh, that position. Anything that stands out that that you've had to change your perception on over time? Oh, it's all about the people and and making sure that we can adapt to what the needs of the people are. And, and that's something that I wouldn't have expected 10 years ago. And, and as we become uh, more thoughtful of that, uh, we've been able to continue to drive growth and efficiency in the business and, uh, and find better ways to make it work for all. And so how does that, I'm interested in how that manifests itself. So, you know, if, if in the past, the idea was it's all about having the most efficient, best equipment and, 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 and you know, is more of a technical thing versus a people thing. How does... How does focusing more on the people on a day-to-day basis, what, what does that look like to you? Yeah, so two-thirds of our employees are equipment operators. And, uh, you know, in the past, it was uh, this, is, this is a job that pays a lot of money. Uh, our operators are very well compensated, and you couldn't give them enough hours. They were in it for the money. And, and I think over time, it's, there's been more uh, work-home-life balance. I think their personal lives have become more important, and we've found, have had to find ways to help them you know, reach that balance. So as, as we zoom out a little bit, as we're winding down this interview, I'm, I'm always interested in the key variables that people are focused on um, for, for, from the, for the company's future. So what are three or four things you think this company absolutely has to get right over the next, I don't know, call it five years for the stock to be a good investment for both employees and shareholders? You know, I think people want to see growth in our business. Uh, we've laid out a strategy how we can grow the business over time. I think we, ha- we have to prove that out. We, we have to prove that we can maintain margins uh, as we grow the business. Um, we, we have to show that uh, we've got the right team in place to protect uh, and, and the right leverage. We need to make sure that we meet our leverage goals. I think if we can do those things, uh, you know, we're already gaining uh, credibility in the market. And I think we'll, we'll continue to do that as we, as we play out our strategy. And I guess we'll close with the question that I ask all of our guests. And we've talked about some things that are misunderstood or underappreciated about the business. But 
What would you say is the most misunderstood or underappreciated aspect of your business? You know, it's always about getting them to understand that we are purely a service business, uh, um, that we don't provide a product, uh, we, that uh, we would never hand over our equipment to have someone else operate it. It's just much too technical. Um, that, uh, um, you know, the importance of our position on a job site, uh, you know, if we're not functioning correctly, the entire job site's at a standstill. So uh, we are mission critical and, and, and we're rewarded for that, for doing a good job there. I think it's really difficult for somebody to duplicate what we have as far as running a decentralized business that's as technical as ours. Um, um, and, and I think we're, we're really solid in what we're doing. Uh, and we have a great strategy that uh, really should carry out for quite some time into the future. And I guess just one little follow up on that, um, you know, would you say that your size and scale both in um, the UK and the US is a moat of sorts? Because it's just even if a new entrant comes in, it's just it's, it's no it's very hard to reach profitability levels that are, you know, whatever, provide a good enough return for whoever the investors are. It would be very difficult to put the team of people together that we have and keep it efficient. It would be quite challenging for someone to get there. Got it. Well, um, I mean, I'm I'm be very I'm very interested to see how uh, the company operates and and you know, as as you as you try to hit those three or four goals that you that you've set out. So um, again, this has been really interesting. We got through a lot of questions. I think it gives people a lot of context for how you're thinking about the business and then for what the business is. So Bruce. Thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate you appearing on Compounders. All right. Well, well thanks, Ben. This has been great for me. And uh, if anyone has any questions, just have them reach out to us. Great. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices, and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better, and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at co-streetcapital.com with your comments or suggestions. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibagger.